Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amici. Let's dive in. everyone and thank you for joining us on today's episode on women's rights in the digital age. My name is Ompa Chamano and today I'll be joined by the highly esteemed advocate Swangile Mukopane who will shed light into the challenges or other issues that women face in the realization of digital rights in Lesotho. However, before we proceed with this conversation, I would like to give a brief overview of the project. So in 2022, the Center for Human Rights at the Digital Rights in Southern Africa Project, which is a research and advocacy-based project. Under this project, we released a title, a report titled The Digital Rights Landscape in Southern Africa. The report is a pure assessment of the status of digital rights in Southern Africa, and it explores the opportunities as well as the challenges that various vulnerable groups in this region experience when it comes to accessing digital services and subsequently in enforcing their digital rights. This report was the backbone of various um, initi- of the various advocacy initiatives that we had. So we had um, training and building capacity workshops for various multi-stakeholders. And we are now recording this podcast to share insights into some of the thematic areas that came out of the project. Um, without any further ado, let's just get or dive into it. Swangile, um, welcome to Africa's Rise Talk. Please introduce yourself and your affiliate institution. Um, thank you very much, Umpa. Uh, thank you for having me today. I'm very, very honored uh, for you hosting me. Just to reiterate what you said, my name is Zonile Mokapani. I am from Lesotho in a district called Mohalisuk in the south. So I am Lesotho born and bred, but I'm currently in South African Pretoria. I'm a human rights lawyer by profession. I mainly focus on women's rights and gender issues. And my newly found interest has been digital rights, particularly in terms of access and inclusion and safety of women and girls and other um, sexual minority uh, individuals online. Um, I work with Politics for Her. I work as an advocacy specialist. Uh, my main focus is the women's uh, leadership and political participation portfolio. Basically, what Politics for Her is, is a youth-led uh, global feminist movement. Um, our objectives are usually or mostly founded on um, intersectional and decolonial feminist principles. So that's our scope of work, or at least where we try to uh, influence um, social change, uh, particularly in terms of um, women's rights and other gender social issues. So we have different hubs across um, the globe. We have the global hub that oversees um, everything else. Then we have a, a hub, a hub for Africa. We have a hub for Swana, which is also known as the MENA region. We have a hub in Asia. We have uh, a hub in Europe. And we also have another hub in the Latin America. So basically, that is who I am and what I do. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Swangila, for that um, brief introduction. It is nice to get acquainted with you and your organization. So what would you say is your understanding of the principle that the same rights that people have offline should be protected online? I think it, it just, um, my view on that is that it just stems from what human rights are. So if we have an overview of different like international human rights treaties or covenants and regional ones, just the different um, human rights treaties that we have, they all recognize that um, human rights are inalienable and inherent. So to me, what that means, it says um, human rights are rights that I have solely because I'm, I'm a human being, I'm nothing more, nothing less. That's it. And that is not something that can be taken or given at discretion. To me, I feel um, that just lays a foundation of, it's not a thing of convenience. If I have rights in this space with you, um, in my office work, uh, I still have the same rights outside with my interaction with people or just in my everyday activities. And I believe if those things, if the rights I have cannot be taken away from your discretion, regardless of what I'm doing or what I'm engaging in, then the same should apply within different spaces, um, which is in this instance online. So if I'm going to interact online, the same um, rights that I have offline in my workspace, in my online workspace, I should be able to enjoy or at least exercise. Or if I'm afforded um, certain um, privileges because of the rights that I have in participating um, in certain spaces, whether it's in a professional setting or in a social setting, then even online professional settings or social settings that should also be afforded um, the opportunity to actually enjoy and exercise those rights. Thank you for that um, explanation. From what you said above, I think we can both agree that the digital world offers immense opportunities to women. Some of these opportunities might not be there in the physical like world, but would you, can you like walk us through the opportunities that women can get by virtue of them being actively participating in the online spaces? One thing that I've actually realized is that the digital space has become um a central hub for information. So basically, that is where you can get a lot of times a lot of information about a certain sector or thing of interest or an individual. So if you want information about anything, your internet is a convenient library that you can do. So it also gives you, uh, how, how can I phrase it? Um, it's a, it's a, it, it just makes you be able to access um, or at least ex like access information that you need. And that information could be on opportunities. So what we realized is that a lot of opportunities you can get them online compared to offline. So online you have, we have different tools such as um, um, digital courses, which are with um, universities or educational institutions from um, other countries and you can actually access them sometimes at a nominal fee or even for free online. So for me, that is a very, very good opportunity that women can get uh, online and instead of incurring other expenses, another opportunity is that online um, is just a platform where 
women gain um, visibility um, and are able to participate in meaningful discussions about issues that face them. So if women are able to access um, the internet or at least participate in platforms that are online, it just um, increases the visibility and or the visibility of the efforts they are doing and that in, in its in its very nature actually inspires other women to, who are actually seeing such efforts that oh actually it's something i can also do for my community it inspires and gives ideas as well also for um entrepreneurial um opportunities as well the online community depending on which communities you are actually offers more outreach for you to engage with your market so um, entrepreneurship uh, actually thrives online compared to, um, um, especially because there's also tools that are um, available for you to target your specific market and tools to monitor how your uh, marketing strategies are actually effective or how you could um, vary your implementation method and just monitor your progress in that regard. So I will say like um uh, access is, is very, very important, uh, particularly for women in the overall development, whether it's individual or um, a social development, but it's something that we actually need to um, empower. Thank you for that. So you mentioned aspects of women visibility. So through the construction of gender and the enforcement of social roles, we know um, in the physical world and not necessarily the digital world, women are subjected to a lot of patriarchy. What's your take on the patriarchal power dynamics that have now um, visibly migrated to the digital spaces? You know, the internet, just like um, everything else, has its pros and cons. The pros being one of the things that I've previously mentioned in terms of opportunities and the things that you can access. So um, it, the cons being one of them. Also, this is based on my observation. Uh, and it's very, very um, unfortunate that the uh, patriarchal power dynamics that we've seen in our everyday society, or at least in our cultural norms, have continued to manifest even online, been evidenced by um, a lot of like um, misogynistic um, abuse and a lot of like perverse behavior with interactions online. So oftentimes, from my observation again, it's triggered by polarized opinions. So there will be an, a conversation starter about uh, an opinion in which is quite polarized or at least people um, have a very... Uh, different views or opinions about it. And somehow it always seems to circle back on things of issues. Uh, I mean, on issues of gender, in particular uh, women and what a woman, a woman is or ought to be. And if the person who holds an op uh, opposing view is a woman or a person of um, the other, other genders, they, they seem to be best or at least they face some lashback on the reason of that behavior or holding such opinion, which is contradictory to their opinion, is solely because of their gender. And their gender somehow influences them to hold an opinion which is, in quotations, wrong. And, and, and it's very, very unfortunate because a lot of people, uh, especially, especially men, are the ones, I'm not saying all the time, um, but from observation, a lot of times it will be men 
who will be uh, perpetrating um, such um, behavior um, and, you know, uh, obstinate um, refusal to actually yield to um, fact or evidence, uh, even if they're put before them and reason has been placed to support such opinion. And they just outright refuse to believe because as a man I am, I cannot yield to such um, narratives or a belief or a standpoint because that is not what a man is or solely on the basis of, you know, trying to protect the fragile masculinity by saying, you, I am a man and you're a woman, therefore you are a woman and therefore you are wrong. I cannot be uh, wrong, regardless of the facts that have been stated or the evidence. So it's very, very unfortunate because you see these narratives which we've seen from, um, you know, patriarchal um, power dynamics um, have moved into our online um, social uh, spaces and it has infested them with these misogynistic beliefs. And they actually, they thrive more online compared to offline because of the the privilege of being anonymous online. You know, the power of hiding behind uh, your keyboard just gives you that advantage to actually um, attest um, statements or comments unfiltered and without or little um, repercussions to the words that you're saying because we actually don't have any frameworks regarding such um, behavior except, you know, community guidelines where usually, you know, a lot of people will recommend that if you don't like a certain comment or a post about something, you can report it or block that certain individual. But that is not enough to actually try to... Um, overcome these narratives that are being said that actually perpetuate these, you know, misogynistic narratives about what women are or what they're not supposed to be. And we say that the internet is a gender-neutral place. Looking at the opportunities that women now have, can we confidently say that we can reach a place where the internet will be gender-neutral? Is it, if it is gender-neutral... So far, um, based from my previous statement, I wouldn't confidently say that the internet is gender neutral, whether it's with regard to women or members of the LGBTI community. We've seen um, a lot of them being subjected to a lot of um, harassment and bullying and any other sort of abuse you can think of online. And it, most of the time is based uh, on their gender or at least how they express it or how it is um, perceived by people online. So because of that experience, um, it, it has caused um, the participation or at least access of women and um, people, um, individuals from the LGBTI community to actually participate or at least experience um, online platforms differently. And th this has actually widened the digital gender gap or divide because it means people who have um, more freedom to freely express themselves and will engage more. And in this case is men, because often not, um, they don't have as much resistance or at least uh, experience harassment about a lot of their beliefs or their ident social identities. And when comparing to women, women, will be harassed, they will be bullied, they will be threatened, and there isn't a lot of measures in order to combat that. So women will tend to uh, shy away from participating from such spaces um, out of fear. It makes women 
not want to at least access the internet or participate fully even in things which are of significance or interest to them because out of fear of what will manifest if I should put out an opinion or if I should say something that someone is not in agreement with. And so it, in essence, it, it, it does impact them significantly. So online, that is one of the factors that actually um, contribute to the digital gender divide between men and women, or at least men and LGBTQ uh, uh, individuals. Thank you. So for those who don't necessarily understand the concept, you, you've been mentioning and referencing a lot about the digital gaps, the gender, the digital gaps and the gender digital divide. What can we briefly, what can we say is the digital divide? What is the gender digital divide? The gender digital divide is basically the difference between how men and people of um, a different gender, which could be women or uh, trans uh, women or just people who um express, identify their gender from, you know, our orthodox definition of um, women and men and women. So it just pertains to how they experience or how they access our digital spaces, whether it's social ones or any other platform online. And this is actually impacted by different factors. For example, like I said, the experience online. So if someone's experience online is something that is not positively impacting their life, they will um, shy away from participating. Another thing that actually contributes to the digital divide digital is a matter of access. So if I'm not able to access such platforms or facilities, then I'm not able to participate in it. So that also contributes to the divide. And oftentimes um, men, because they usually have a lot of uh, more resources than women, they are more advantaged to actually have um, means to access digital spaces. Again, it's a, it's a matter of inclusion or at least the ability to, to participate in such platforms. So if a person lacks such digital skills, they cannot access such um, digital spaces. And the matter of skills sometimes is also contingent on one being illiterate. So individuals who are less literate uh, or illiterate are likely to not be able to access such digital um, spaces, therefore contributing to the digital divide. And oftentimes we realize that um, women are compared to men are lacking with digital skills or at least the ability to use um, digital tools and we also have the stereotypes about what these digital spaces are for or what they do i actually <laughs> i have uh, my mother's uh, great grandmother i remember when i went back home for a funeral and I was on my phone constantly and she kept asking me um, in my home language um, are you on Facebook but she referred to it as more Facebook and I, I told her no oh, I thought it was interesting that an old lady like her was um, familiar with Facebook then she sort of like frowned at me and told me, mm, I don't like the small Facebook of yours. I hear that people are doing uh, very, very uh, inappropriate things there. Women are selling themselves there. And also the Saturnism activities happening on that platform. So uh, um, so such, um, you know, uh, stereotypes or at least, you know, misinformation about that platform will actually deter my third great-grandmother 
from actually participating from Facebook because uh, she has certain beliefs about what Facebook is. So even maybe just considering uh, the fact of the fact of illiteracy. So if someone can't read or write, automatically it excludes them from participating from such things. And as much as in Lesotho, the case is different. We actually have more women who are literate than men. But in other areas in the southern region, we've seen from statistics that men are actually more literate um, than women. So that that means uh, more men who are literate are likely to participate in digital spaces. So that also contributes to digital divide. Um, so an overall, overall view would be that uh, more men seem to have... Um, more access or at least um, they, the inclusion of men and also the experience is, is, is better and positive compared to women or at least uh, members of the LGBTI community online. Thank you for that. So you, I agree with you. Digital literacy has been or is becoming a crucial tool for the empowerment of women and LGBTIQ persons. So for those who are digitally inclined or for those who are included in within these digital technologies, there seem to be a spike um, in spiteful and hateful comments that girls and women experience online. Can you please elaborate on the forms of abuses as they manifest in Lesotho? Um, I think um, online violence against women and girls in Lesotho is actually quite often. Also, from observation, we don't really have a lot of research or um, literature produced around the topic. But one thing I can say is the most common um, social platform that, uh, that are used are in Lesotho are Facebook and WhatsApp. And maybe second to that, or maybe third place, um, depending on how you rate the first two, would be Twitter and maybe Instagram in fourth place. And there are the other social um, networks are not as common. But if you were to, I, I usually more than tie a lot of activity on Facebook and a lot of um, social groups on different, uh, different communities on social interests. So I realized that the most common is bullying and harassment. I think the most I've actually observed to be actually be victims of such, you know, hate speech and harassment have been women in politics or and just women in general. And these platforms have actually been a hub for um, defamatory uh, statements against them, against their families. And it's not even, sometimes it's not even a, a thing of where someone is actively uh, participating within the spaces because we've seen a case of a lot of fake accounts perpetuating um, these heinous crimes, spreading propaganda. As uh, I think was it last, last year we had our, around October, we had our general elections in October. So previously to that, there was a lot of campaigning and online platforms had been a great, a great opportunity for a lot of um, politicians to campaign using these platforms. And a lot of political dirty tactics were used, especially against women. So it, within these groups, uh, you'd find a lot of uncalled for posts about individuals that are not of significance to 
that contribution or at least that involvement in politics or at least the office they're trying to run for or at least um, their manifestos and what they're trying to present out as what they will deliver to the people. So it was very, very unfortunate to see it being perpetuated in that way. And also investigative journalists are also being harassed a lot. Um, I remember a post, um, unfortunately did not, it wasn't a, a popular one, or at least it didn't trend. A certain um, male individual who is a businessman of one of an establishment, myself, uh, a local newspaper had actually ran um, an article on him and certain assertions were made within that article. And from the post, I perceived that the man was not happy about the allegations made in the article. And his post, in essence, named the female journalist who wrote the article, then went on to mention the male editor. So the post was basically saying, so-and-so and your male edit and your um, editor, um, I am not happy with what you, you wrote about me. Such allegations are not true. And there will be repercussions, but uh, in, in not so friendly words. And I thought that it was interesting that he felt the need to actually name the, gen- the female journalist and to refer to the male editor as just your editor. And it just, to me, was one of those things that actually stood out for me that, oh, is it a, a power thing where he felt that he could actually name the female journalist um, because maybe there's a sense of power because she is a woman and to not name the male editor because he's another man. And there's a a sense of respect or reverence because as a man to man, um, I guess even though you're expressing your discontent about a certain thing, but there was a a difference in how he addressed the different people who contributed to that. Nonetheless, whether the allegations in the article were true or not, but... I did feel the way he addressed the thing really did have a connotation of, uh, you know, being biased um, on on gender. I think with regard to image-based um, online violence is not as common. Um, again, my said um, statement is based on observation. It's not as common um, because I don't have statistics to actually confirm such. But it's, uh, we don't really have a lot of, well, at least I haven't, you know, trending pictures because usually whenever such content goes out, it trends within these groups. You can, it moves from Facebook to WhatsApp um, or back and forth. And there's a lot of sharing of such content. So we, we haven't seen that, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because I've actually interacted with a few individuals who've actually uh, come out to say, I have such a problem that um, an intimate image of me is being shared or at least receiving threats about I'm being extorted image indecent um, intimate images that I have and I, I cannot be helped by any um, authorities I've had the police I've had the chief but unfortunately I cannot be assisted I think the most common one is cyber harassment and cyber bullying and a lot of hate speech in in our context Thank you so much for that detailed observation. It seems as if there's a lot of misinformation and malinformation 
for women who are in the public eye, the public office and political functions, as well as women who are human rights defenders. There seem to be a lot of defamatory statements as well as bullying and harassment that they face online, premised on their gender. In terms of the legal and policy framework, do you think that the current frameworks that are placed there cater for women's rights in the digital age? I think um, currently um, our national um, legal and policy frameworks are short. We have a lot of gray area that address these online conduct. For example, we have existing, current existing, statutes we have our penal code and our sexual offenses act so under the penal code under section 48 it covers threats so you can report threats being being made um to um the police um sexual offenses um act covers where there's a provision that covers our indecent exposure to some extent the two acts can cover certain conduct of online gender-based violence particularly um you know, unsolicited images, intimate images, or maybe threats or harassment, sexual threat, you could report. But unfortunately, we don't have specific provisions that cover other conduct that constitutes um, online gender-based violence, such as um, doxing or catfishing, sextortion or exploitation. And... In as much as our current uh, Counter Domestic Violence Act does give, um, there's a provision, I think it's under Section 3K, that uh, makes provision for technology facilitated gender based violence, which is you know, uh, online gender based violence. We still haven't agreed on a, on a common term for it, but it, it all means the same thing. Um, unfortunately, the provision just um, acknowledges and states it as a definition to be um, classified under domestic violence. So that is still not enough because it doesn't outline specific conduct conduct that constitutes online gender-based violence, like the ones that mentioned um, before, like doxing and catfishing and upskirting and the different kinds or harassment, it doesn't make specific provisions in defining such conduct and criminalizing them and imposing penalties um, for them. Um, I think mine might actually consider the current cyber crimes and computer crimes bill. It only covers the non-consensual um, disclosure of intimate uh, images aspect of online gender-based violence. And to me, it's still not enough to cover the, the said other conducts that would like for them to be defined and um, criminalized and uh, have uh, penalties within um, our legal framework. I think also even within our different policies, whether it's our gender and development policy, I think it would be ideal to actually have... Um, uh, a provision or at least a standpoint of where we stand in terms of um, internet governance and how it affects gender. I think that is very, very um, important provision that we could actually consider as a country because um, with the current trends of how the internet is evolving and, you know, with things like AI, deep fakes are becoming uh, 
a thing which are actually very, very uh, adverse and they actually contribute to, um, you know, image-based um, sexual violence against women. So we do need a standpoint against the regulations, um, not just with regard to users, but also I think with regard to um, internet intermediaries and how they should um, at least um, construct the um, community standards or at least the, the principles they have in in governing um, their users. So you did touch on some of this. It seems as if the legislative and policy uh, policies that are there are not necessarily adequate or sufficient enough or efficient enough to actually deal with some of the issues that women face online. What uh, legislative and policy reforms would you propose? I think my first recommendation would be the amendment or maybe through regulations of the Counter-Domestic Violence Act of 2022 to expound on Section 3K of, um, of that act to actually list different conduct that constitute online violence, uh, whether it's image-based or non-image-based. So whether someone has produced uh, an intimate image of an individual using AI, so that's not in mistakes, whether it's someone using some, someone's identity to catfish other individuals uh, online, um, because that also uh, has its own uh, consequences in that personal story, your identity and talk, or at least extort people using identity, and you are threatened. And as much as um, our current laws, or at least how they're trying to combat that is by charging someone with um, identity fraud, um, it's still not enough to actually um, bring justice to the victim of the person whose identity has been misused. So conducts um, such as that actually need to be um, defined within the act, or at least legally defined, and they should be um, penalized proportionally, That I, I think that should be noted. And I think that would be a great step in, in actually um, trying to combat online gender-based violence and it being uh, expounded on. Um, then secondly, I think we, we do need um, a policy that recognizes that internet governance is a, is a three-part process, if I may put it like that, that involves the government, citizens, or at least users of the government, and the internet intermediaries. So the policies should be clear on what that standpoint is regarding um, the different intermediaries that actually offer services online. Um, I mean, in that different scale, because you can't have the same position um, regarding like the larger enterprises or and the smaller enterprises. So that also needs to be weighed equally. And then just um, a policy uh, about government and how it, because we're also, with the current legal frameworks, there's also uh, foresight of um, possible human rights violations in terms of surveillance and limiting one's rights um, to freedom or at least expression and limiting the rights of media and just um, access to information within um, government archives or at least documents and how one can actually use such things 
So we see that uh, going forward, there's a possibility that people will be prosecuted for having access to certain documents and how they use it, even though it's in the public interest. So I, I think we also need um, a policy that also governs that, um, that actually weighs the country's um, national security and the citizens' right to information and also the rights of uh, individual to freely express their opinions and to associate online. So there's, there's a need for a balance um, between the two. And I believe um, the said um, proposed or yet to be developed policy should actually consider that and uh, properly have uh, a balance between the three rights of uh, the, the, the three um, entities that I've mentioned that are role players or at least actors uh, within the digital spaces. Thank you so much for that. I do hope that like a balance is achieved. Uh, we have come to the the end of our podcast. So as a closing remark, um, what tips would you give to women so that they have like safer digital life? For now, um, just having precautionary measures is um, your best bet to being safe online. And using your gut and your instinct. If something is off, um, maybe you should look into it. And also just being very cautious about what you give out or put out um, on the internet, whether it's in your on your on your own free will, and just I know a lot of people don't read the terms and conditions of policies that we usually just uh, click accept and submit. But I, I think people should actually be uh, very wary of doing it in that way. Maybe perhaps it wouldn't hurt a bit to every now and then actually go through the policies uh, to see what they're they're saying and what's your standpoint was in uh, that. I think besides that, I think um, just using uh, available uh, digital security tools, just having strong passwords, <laughs> like have passwords, passwords for your apps, passwords for your devices. Those are very, very important and not just any passwords, um, use strong, strong passwords. And I always advise that your wrong password uh, if you can't have like a combination of an uppercase, lowercase number and characters, maybe you can try phrases because they're also easier to remember. So you can have a, a phrase that has all um, um, uh, the required um, um, elements of the upper and lower cases and numericals and characteristics. And, and using the 2FA, the two-factor authentication for your different uh, apps that actually provided, whether it's your uh, email account, your different uh, social media platforms, such as um, WhatsApp and Facebook, um, and your Gmail. They also um, give um, two-factor authentication as um, a security um, measure to, uh, to protect your your applications and we also have encryptions um just encrypt your documents encrypt your emails um that is very very important and actually very very easy things to do uh things to do that are not as technical as they may sound and i think also be wary of um just downloading random uh, applications on your phone. So if you're going to, um, and giving certain uh, permissions of such uh, applications once you've uh, downloaded them, because sometimes they may have um, 
malicious things. So beware if you're going to download a calculator and a calculator is asking for permission to allow your camera. A calculator does not um, need your camera. So don't just allow, allow, allow. I think another important one is to self-dox. Basically what that means is uh, always, well, occasionally, not always, occasionally do um, search um, your particulars online and just to see um, what's out there online about you um, and where it is just uh, randomly. <laughs> I don't know if people still do it like when we used to do it as children. Just Google yourself and see what the internet um, says. You can also um, reverse search uh, images of yourself, of yourself, just to see where that picture also pop um, pop up. But you, you actually find it very interesting that your image, um, or at least a part of that image, has been used in certain um, uh, platforms that you were not aware of. Um, but also just, just in closing, be cautious, be very cautious about giving out personal information, especially your identification numbers and your addresses. And I think, especially for maybe separating, having different accounts, I mean, email or, uh, marketing things and maybe for, uh, personal and important information, well, at least that is how I do it. So for, I have an email where I sign up for commercial um, things, like um, I sign up for news, uh, for um, advertisement uh, new uh, newsletters or if uh, for receipts, um, I have a specific email for that. Then I have a personal information that I receive, my, my important messages. So when an email comes in, I know I'm expecting such an email and don't just open um, random links. When you get emails, be wary of clicking on pictures or links that you're not sure what they contain. And especially from um, standards that you are not familiar with, that is um, very, very, very dangerous sometimes to do. Because um, that's how people uh, sometimes get uh, scammed, or at least have. I think that is all for me. Uh, Ompa, thank you very much for having me today. Thank you to the center. Thank you for the thank you thank you to the unit for having me. This has been a very very lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, Swakile. Uh, Hopefully, we get to work together soon as well. Of course, of course. It's been lovely. It's always a delight working with you, Ampa. <laughs> you have just listened to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.